The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. All right. It's awesome to be here with you. Look at God's Word together. We're going to continue through our study in Revelation, and we are almost there. Can you believe it? Uh, today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, um, maybe for some of you this is brand new, you've never heard of it, uh, you're not sure what the big deal is. For others, you realize this is one of the, probably the most, one of the most controversial passages, uh, at least for Christians, intramural debate, if you will, um, that, there, that there could be, and it's this morning, so that's exciting. Uh, l- let's read God's word together. We're going to be in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10. Revelation 20, 1 to 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he who seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a communicating God. Lord, we thank you that you communicate through your word. Lord, we have this, uh, this authority uh, through which we know you and, and what you're like, what you're doing, what you call for from us. Uh, Lord, through this word, we, we can know ourselves and our need for you. Lord, we thank you for... Your best word, the ultimate word, the person of your son, Jesus, and how we see you as we see him. We thank you for how he has come for us, and he will come again. And Lord, we pray that you would speak today. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit, please to help me, give me clarity, uh, give me courage, so that all who hear, Lord, can be, uh, can be blessed, that you would help me to teach this faithfully, please, Lord. And that you would speak the better message, the greater message, uh, to each one of our minds and hearts. Lord, help us, help us hear your voice and respond with faith, Lord, we pray. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, continuing through the book of Revelation. Today's passage, among Christians anyway, one of the most controversial texts in the entire Bible, and you... And you saw kind of the main event, the, these thousand years are mentioned. And so here it is, we have that almost infamous millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. And so the question most of us want to answer when we come to this text, I mean, I'm guessing this is the question on your mind, what does this passage mean for how we understand the millennium? That's probably what's on our minds. So let's go there just for a moment to start. Uh, Generally speaking, I think it's fair to say there's three 
main or prominent views among Christians regarding the millennium. And if you grab the little handout we had for you, it kind of gives you a brief picture of those. So I'll just give you the tiniest of summaries, okay? The top one on your handout, it's called premillennialism. So here's the framework of how that works. Number one, uh, it interprets these thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 as a literal 1,000 years. And the, be- the view believes basically that Christ will come to rapture Gentile Christians. Uh, maybe you've read or heard of the Left Behind books. It's, maybe that's sort of a picture of it. There's this taking away of Gentile Christians before this time of tribulation. And then the view says Jesus will reign for a thousand literal years on, in this world's Israel, then Satan will be released to inspire a final battle, battle, after which Jesus will return for good to judge all people, renew the world. Okay, maybe that's too simplistic, but that's premillennialism. Uh, and it's probably the most popular view in modern American Christianity. I think it's safe to say most, most American Christians would move that direction. The second view on your handout is called postmillennialism. In this view, the thousand years can be literal or figurative, most likely figurative to most of them, I think. And it's a time, the millennium then, is a time when this world is nearly Christianized. Uh, the preaching of the gospel, a postmillennial would say, is so successful that it brings like a global situation of peace and righteousness. It's been said that in this view, Jesus comes to a saved world as much as to save the world. Uh, I'm not post-millennial, but some of my favorite Puritan theologians were post-millennial. Uh, post-millennialism is probably the, most, probably the least common view uh, today, but it, it seems to be growing perhaps in some circles. Anyway, the third view on your little handout is called all-millennialism. It's called all-millennial because that really just means Latin for no millennium, which isn't that accurate. What we're saying is um, an all-millennial sees the thousand years as symbolic. So it's, uh, we could call it the age of the church, where the gospel does grow fabulously throughout the world, just as Jesus said, people from all nations will hear the gospel and believe But simultaneously, even with the growth of the gospel, there's a time of tribulation. And as the gospel grows, the world also grows in its hatred of the church. And by the end, it it will look even hopeless, but God's people are delivered at the one and final return of Jesus Christ. And I think it's safe to say amillennialism is a, it's an old view. It's a traditionally reformed view. And if you're if you're like, oh, I mean, that's the way you've been hearing Revelation every week since I started teaching it. I've been giving you the all-millennial way of looking at things. So those are three main views. Obviously, I I gave them to you horribly simplistically. Uh, You know, you're you're almost tempted. You could could spend a month unpacking the background behind each one of these views. So um, why why is it so full of controversy, I guess, for Christians? Obviously, I just gave you this, the... The briefest highlights or summaries of these, of these views. Why is it such a big deal? Well, one reason is because it's about the return of Jesus, and that's important to us, right? Uh, another reason is um, it's kind of a difficult text because the only, the only place I think you, you hear about these thousand years specifically is right here. And so that means you realize that as you interpret this, all your other assumptions for how you interpret the Bible weigh in really heavily, so, for instance, like the more you see a discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the more you're going to think Jesus still needs to keep promises to ethnic Israel, and the more you'll lean towards being pre-millennial. But that has to do with kind of a, a hermeneutic point of view, the way you interpret. The more you see Christ fulfilling all of these promises in his work and his reign, the more you see a continuity, you might lean more towards being amillennial. Okay, so, so it's tied to other beliefs, other assumptions, other passions. Um, but I do want to say, I think it's really important for me to say right now, your view of the millennium is not the litmus test for whether or not you're a Christian. 
Can, can I get more amens? Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not the litmus test. And even if you look at, at, your, at your piece of paper, at the end of those three views, they all end up at the same place. So there's, a, there's actually amazing unity to celebrate here. Number one, Jesus is literally, physically, and historically going to come back. He is going to judge all people and save those who have trusted in him. And all of his people will reign for him for, with him forever in new glorified bodies on a renewed earth. Praise God, right? Praise God. So Christian boundaries, like what, what makes us Christian? Um, Jesus comes back literally and physically. That's, we have to have that, right? And he's going to judge the living and the dead. He is going to save his people, renew the earth. And we can celebrate that together. So we have, we have much to be united over, right? So, I also want to admit there are wonderful godly people who love the Bible that hold to all three of these views. All three of these views. Um, so what you believe about the millennium is not the main thing. Having said that, um, still here we are and we wonder, what does this passage mean for how we understand the millennium? I mean, we, we're of the conviction, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Are you, are you with me on that camp? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That's one reason we preach through entire books, usually, at Fountain of Life. Because it's all breathed out by God and inspired and profitable for God's people. And so that discipline of preaching through books, that does bring us to texts where sometimes we think, I'm not, I'm not sure what to do with this. But we never want to say, oh, that's too hard, it's not important. This is God's word. It's important. Now, God's word itself tells us which truths are most important. Read 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you that which I received, that which is of first importance. And you'll hear the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he's done. That's of first importance. This is important too. But you know, so, so we're coming to this passage and we're wondering, what does this passage mean for how we understand the millennium? And it's an important question. But, but as I was preparing this sermon, I realized, and I hope you realize it too, that's not the question John is answering. We, we need to all realize that John's main point here is not that you would walk away from this passage saying, now I know which camp I'm in regarding the millennium. I assure you that's not his point. What is John emphasizing? What is the question on John's mind that he means to answer? Here's what John is talking about. John is answering this question. Why should you, a Christian who trusts Jesus, faithfully hold to the word of God and the testimony of Christ no matter the cost? That's what John's talking about. Why should you trust, proclaim, and live for Jesus Christ even when the cost for doing that could be great? Why would, you, why would you hang on? Why would you be loyal to Christ and his call despite the cost? That, that's what John's talking about. He's trying to inspire a, lo, a loyal devotion to the gospel and its call. So here I, here's how I would summarize this. First, a loyal devotion to the gospel itself. Do you know who Jesus is, what he's done, what he will do? Do you trust him? Do you know his perfect life? And that through faith alone in him, that's how you are made right before God. Do you know of his substitutionary death? And through faith in what he's done, that's how you're forgiven of all your sins. The penalty of God's wrath that we deserved wiped away, washed away through what Christ did on the cross? Do you know that he rose from the dead for you victorious and he reigns now? Do you trust and hold to that gospel? Moreover, are you loyal to the call of that gospel? We're saved by grace alone through faith alone and not by our works. But I think it was Martin Luther who said, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. 
When you trust in Jesus Christ, you get a new heart and new desires and that begins to transform what you love and you want to live in obedience to the Lord. There's no one who comes to Jesus as Savior who does not also come to him as Lord and King because he's both. And so the gospel will call you to live a certain way. We want to be loyal to the gospel and its call. And that's what John's after. He wants us to faithfully hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus no matter the cost. And he needs to encourage us with this because he knows that in this world there will be immense pressures to compromise on both. Immense pressures to compromise on both. You really think Jesus is the only way to God? Can you feel that pressure? You really think that? Or you, re- you really think you're saved by faith alone? I think you need works. Or you think uh, sexual integrity is important? You're going you're gonna to stand for God's design according to his scriptures on how we live? There will be pressure to compromise on the gospel and its call. And sometimes the price will be huge. And so John's motivating you to be faithful, to be loyally devoted to the gospel and its call. That's the question he's after. Why should we stay faithful no matter the cost? Here's why. The millennium is part of his answer. It's not itself the answer. This is what this whole book has been about, isn't it? Being faithful to the gospel and its call. Let me take you all the way back. Look at Revelation 1.9. Revelation 1.9. John writes, I, John, your brother, partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Well, there it is, right? The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see that those ideas repeated? And, And what happened to John on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus? Here he is, an old man. He's been exiled to an island reserved for political prisoners. Uh, Historians even wonder about how awful this could have been. Uh, There could be like slave labor. He's been taken out of his home. Why? Why did he experience this? Because he was devoted to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He proclaimed the gospel and its call. But I, I want you to notice what he says. He's, your, he's, he's our partner in the what? Tribulation. Friends, when did the tribulation begin? Is it something we're waiting for out there? John says, first century, I'm in it. He's not just the partner in the tribulation. What else is he the partner in? The kingdom. When is Jesus reigning and doing his work? Right now, do you see two things that fit right next to each other? The kingdom grows right next to, right in, tribulation. They're both occurring. He's also a partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. We are waiting. We are waiting for one fundamental thing. Paul calls it the blessed hope. Look at Titus 2.13. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for our blessed hope, the thousand years. No, that's not, that's not what he said. We're waiting for our blessed hope. What's our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. That's our hope. So according to John, a major theme of the Christian life will be holding fast to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God despite the difficulty. And Revelation has expressed this in so many ways. In chapter 12, we, we hit this new section of the book and it, it almost reads like a, a graphic novel, right? And, and Satan comes like a dragon. Look at Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And who are those people? Those who keep the commandments of God. And hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see the repeated, these two repeated phrases. John says, I'm holding to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And, and Christians are those who hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And, and who's the dragon? It's Satan. And who's he after? 
those who hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's, he's after them. Now look at verse four of our passage today. Right in the middle of Revelation 24. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. You see those same two phrases repeated again? That's a descriptor of the Christian life. And so John is saying, faithfulness to Jesus, faithfulness to the gospel and its call will often have a cost. There will be pressure to abandon the gospel or to change it. And there will be pressure to abandon the call of the gospel on your life or to change it. And in fact, sometimes the pressure will be so hard that the cost will be incredibly painful. You might be exiled like John, or you might just be made fun of. You might be ostracized by your friends, your family. You might lose your tax-exempt status. You might not get hired. If you're savvy on your critical theory, if you hold to the gospel and its call, society might soon find us to be the hegemonic oppressors that need to be overthrown because we won't bow to the views on gender or whatever. You, you might lose your job for faithfulness to the gospel and its call. In some cases in, in history, you might even get your head cut off. That's, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul, right? Why endure for Jesus when it can have a cost like that? It's, it's one thing to be casually religious, right? Almost everybody's sort of into that can hit a meeting every once in a while, try to be a nice person. You know, uh, sociologists say the most common religion in America is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Have, have you heard that before? They say no matter what, what you claim your religion is, the real religion of America, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, hey, we should be a good person, right? Therapeutic, my main definition of what it means to be a good person is that I need to be happy, and deism, yeah, there's a God out there somewhere, kind of undefined, not transcendent and holy, imminent, close, but kind of just out there. Don't, don't you know people like that? Maybe it's you, spiritual but not religious. And why would you cling to moralistic therapeutic deism when it had a cost? You wouldn't. You'll adjust whatever you need to adjust because, again, the therapeutic part, it needs to make you happy. But you see how different Jesus is? Jesus comes to live and die for us and says to us, I'm so worthy that if necessary, you need to be willing to sacrifice and die for me. Do you hear that? And so we all have to ask ourselves, do I believe that that much? Do, do I love Jesus that much to where it would, I would take the, the inconvenience or the suffering or the pain for his sake? You know, in our, in our day and age, um, it, it's been possible to kind of be a comfortable Christian. And listen, I, I'm not like longing to suffer, okay? I'm not like, I'm not like hoping to suffer. I don't, I don't want that. But it's, it's, it's been kind of, we've had immense freedom. And it's, it's not been that hard to be a Christian recently, but in some places in, in history, in some places in the world, buckle up if you receive Christ. And, and maybe that will come more and more in the coming days. So, so it's good this text asks us, like, how, how in are you? And in asking us that, it gives you reasons to endure, reasons why it's worth it. So the, ant, the, the question John is asking is, why should you endure for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus despite the cost? Not, what's your view of the millennium? <laughs> but in asking, why should you endure for Jesus despite the cost? Part of the reason he thinks it's worth it to endure for Jesus is in this idea of the millennium. It's part of the answer that's meant to encourage you. So yeah, we got to unpack some of what John means by the millennium for this to make sense. 
For it to encourage you, you have to understand it. But I just don't want to, I really don't want to miss the forest for all the trees. So if you leave here more excited about your view of the millennium than you are about holding fast to the testimony of Christ and his call on your life, you miss the point. If my, if my sermon is only about which view of the millennium, and we didn't all go, well, maybe, maybe we disagree on, on the details of the millennium, but let's live for the gospel and its call no matter the cost. Do you see which one we, we need to emphasize? So I got to show you my cards. I got to teach this the way I see it, right? That's the only way this works. I am a happy amillennialist. I'm a happy amillennialist. I, I think that position is the most biblically faithful. And I hope to show you some of why. But my main hope in this sermon is not that you will go out and buy an I'm a millennialist t-shirt. <laughs> or that you will look down on brothers and sisters who see things differently. Gosh, where does pride and self-righteousness hit us more sometimes than on this? Have mercy. Have mercy. Now, my hope is that we'll cling to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus no matter the cost because we're convinced of three things. So if you're taking notes, three things. The hope, the assurance, and the confidence. The hope, the assurance, and the confidence. Enduring for Jesus because of the hope. This is verses one to three. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Seize the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. So here we are, finally dealing with the story, or, or with the dragon. Uh, just to back up again, back in chapter 12, we hit this new section. It's like this, this graphic novel in the story of the church, uh, and there's this counterfeit trinity. Anybody remember who they are? We've seen them several times at this point. First, there's the dragon. What does he represent? That's Satan himself, right? A fallen angel who, who wants to tempt you and destroy you, hates God, hates God's people. And then Satan inspires the beast. We've been saying the beast is government gone bad. Government in itself is not bad, but governments go bad. And in these cases, they are satanically inspired to demand idolatry. So in other words, you will worship what we tell you to worship, or you won't worship Jesus, and if you insist on it, we'll make you pay. Government gone bad. That's what the beast symbolizes. Then the third part of this false trinity was the false prophet. Remember, it looks like a lamb but talks like a dragon. So it's false religion, especially false Christianity. It has the guise of, of looking okay, but it's, it's pushing you away from the gospel and its call. So you've got the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and then they have a prostitute called Babylon. You remember her? And she signifies these economic and cultural systems people love to follow instead of Jesus. And the reason she's seen as a prostitute is because she's calling you to spiritual adultery. She wants you to deny faithfulness to the great husband, Jesus Christ, who deserves all our devotion and our love and our obedience, and, and sell your soul to something else. It, it, could, it could be money, money, it could be any good thing in this world. We went over that. So we've got these enemies, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the prostitute, and they're, they're overwhelming. But then in these last few chapters in Revelation, as we near the end of the book, the tables are turning. Who fell in chapter 18? Babylon fell. So we saw Babylon will fall. Don't, don't, don't fall in with her. Stay faithful to Christ because Babylon will fall. And then two weeks ago in chapter 19, who met their end? The beast and the false prophet. So you see, our enemies have come on the scene, and then stage by stage, step by step, we're seeing Jesus deal with our enemies. Babylon has fallen. The false prophet has fallen. The beast has fallen. There's one enemy left to deal with here. Who is it? It's the dragon. And that's the story we're visiting here in chapter 20. So we are reminded, I, I need to say this here, it simply doesn't work to read the chronology of these visions like they represent the chronology of historical events. I think that's where people get in trouble with Revelation. We read the chronology of the visions and the way the visions come like they're the chronology of historical events. Here's one reason that doesn't work very well. We've seen final judgment four times. 
Uh, or another one, chapter 15, John said, with this bowl, the wrath of God was finished. That was chapter 15. What did we see at the end of chapter 19? Wrath. <laughs> A lot of it. So, so how do we deal with this? Well, we remember Revelation likes to look at the same things over and over again from different perspectives. The seven letters, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven visions, they're all looking at the same thing, the same time, this time between Jesus and first and second comings. They're all looking at it from different perspectives. So we're revisiting the same issues, seeing more, learning more, and it grows in intensity as we near the end. Let me give you an example from the text right here. We see that Satan is bound for a thousand years. If, if you're reading Revelation and the chronology of the visions as if they're chronological history, why does Satan need to be bound in chapter 20? Let me show you what happened at the end of chapter 19. Look at Revelation 19.19. 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Notice first, there was a great battle of the kings against God's people, right? And as you read chapter 19, what happened to all of those people? The small, the great, the rich, the poor. What, what happened to all of them when Jesus came back? They were all slaughtered. At the end of 19, there's no one left. It's It's victory. So if you read that chronologically, why does Satan need to be bound so he won't deceive people? There, there isn't anyone left. So you think, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense if you realize we're revisiting the same thing again from a new perspective. We're backing up. The events in Revelation 20, 1 to 6, happened before the final return of Jesus Christ. It's before his final return. So we're going back again, as Revelation does so often, going back again to revisit uh, the same things from a different perspective to learn more. And, and here we're going back again so that we can revisit the triumph of Christ over our worst enemy, the devil himself. And that starts with the devil being bound. So what does that mean, the devil being bound? Well, actually, in the text, it doesn't say the devil was bound. It says the dragon was bound. Here's another reminder for you. First reminder, don't read the chronolo chronology of the visions like it's the chronology of history. That doesn't work. Also, read Revelation symbolically. Do you think the devil is a reptile? Does he shed his skin? Does he sit under a heat lamp? Okay. He's a dragon. Do you think it's a literal chain that goes around his neck made of spirit metal? You know, that is that, is that how we are to read this? I don't, I don't think so. So when you think of him being bound, that's an illustration, right, to show us of a spiritual reality. So what does it mean that he's bound? You, you get clues. Look at 21 verse, or 20 verse 3. Satan was thrown into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not what? Anybody see it? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So in, in what way somehow is Satan bound in this context? We're, we're going to try to get to what it means. But it at least starts with this. What can he not do somehow? He can't deceive people somehow. So when does this happen? Well, at first glance, you, think it's, it's, you might think it's, there's no way it's right now, right? Because what is Satan doing all over the place right now? He's deceiving. In fact, the world is deceived, and you probably got deceived last Tuesday, Right? Um, he's, he's still deceiving. But there's more detail in here. Look at, look at 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for what? For battle. And here we see another picture of the same battle we've seen over and over and over again. 
The way Satan wants to deceive the nations in this context is he wants to bring all the nations of the earth against the church. He wants to wipe out the church. That's what he's been trying to do from the beginning. Remember that battle in, in chapter 19? This is a picture of the same battle. You've got echoes from the prophet Ezekiel. But we see that the major way Satan is bound during this thousand years is that he can't deceive the nations, especially in that he can't bring them together to make war against the church. Do you realize John is saying, from the beginning, Satan has wanted to crush the church of Jesus Christ. John is saying if he wasn't bound, he would have. He would have. Have you seen through the ebbs and flows of history how it seems like the, the gospel and the church may just totally be obliterated? It may just totally lose. And we see here the enduring existence of the church is an act of God. Satan is bound. Because when he's unbound, what's he going to do? He will bring all the nations against the church. But it shows us, we get the idea that for Satan to be bound, it doesn't mean he's bound in every conceivable way, but he's bound in some ways specifically. Let me give you an example of this. There's a story from uh, Mark chapter 3, and there Jesus is casting demons, right? It's a famous story, the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus, Jesus is casting out demons, and his, his enemies hate him so much that they spin it so that they say he's casting demons out. Why? Anybody remember what they say? They say he's casting demons out because he himself is demonic. And, and Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Why would Satan come against Satan? But then Jesus says these amazing words. Look at Mark 3, 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder, in, plunder his goods unless he first, what? Binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. What's the illustration Jesus is using? Who's the strong man? It's Satan. Who's the one who binds the strong man and steals his stuff? It's Jesus. And what's the stuff Jesus is stealing? It's people. It's people. And that word for Bind the strong man, deo, same word in Revelation 20, bind the serpent. Do you see part of what the Bible is telling you it means for, when, when, what, Satan, for what it means for, for Satan to be bound? Look at Colossians 1.12. Colossians 1.12 to 14, Paul is praying for this church. Um. He wants them to give thanks to the God, the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One, imag one, one imagery of your salvation is, where did you used to be? used to be the domain of darkness. Satan was not bound when it came to you. Your eyes were blind. He had you right where he wanted you, deceived, not loving Christ, not trusting him. But what did Jesus do for you? Through his life, his death, his resurrection, he has bound the one who bound you and delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his son. He has plundered Satan, and the thing he stole from Satan was you. It was me. He went and wrenched us free through his life, his death, his resurrection. Wow. So amillennialists then like to think, Satan being bound means that in this age of the church, nothing can stop the gospel from saving God's people from all the nations. God will save and keep his people. The cross and resurrection has triumphed. God's people are being saved. 
you trust Christ, you can be forgiven, you can be belong, you can belong to him. Look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It's a familiar text, right? Jesus came and said to them, what's he say? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. What is he saying about himself? I'm king. What's that thousand years about? It's about the reign of Jesus. We're not waiting for him to be king. He's king now. And because he's king now, what can happen? What does he say to the church? Go and do what? Make disciples. What gives you any hope for going to people who don't know Christ? People groups who don't know the gospel. What gives you any hope for going and seeing them become disciples? Here's what gives you the hope. Jesus is king. And part of Jesus being king is Satan is bound. He cannot stop the spread of the gospel in saving God's elect people. They will be saved because Satan is bound. So when we think of, I'm giving you an uh, an all-millennialist point of view here. Uh, This thousand years is not a literal thousand years. It's hard to find any numbers in Revelation that aren't symbolic. It signifies a time that's long and complete where Jesus reigns and Satan is bound in that Jesus saves and keeps all of his people. And so this thousand years is symbolic for the age of the church. It's happening right now. It's happening right now. And you think, really, it doesn't feel like Satan's bound right now. And again, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think this text means to say Satan is bound in every conceivable way. I think that story in Mark 3 shows us that. Jesus is saying Satan is bound in one way, and that way is I'm saving my people from him. That's how he's bound. It doesn't mean he's not doing all those things he's been doing. But he cannot stop the spread of the gospel to save God's people. And if you just, if you take a look back, right, think of the times of the Old Testament. As far as the scope of the earth, how many people knew and loved the true and living God uh, in the first century AD? It's almost nothing. And in fact, Gentiles coming to faith, it's so notable in the Old Testament, like we have a list of their names because there's not that many of them. How, how many people know and, and love the true and living God when Jesus rises from the dead? There's 120 people on the hill with him or something like that. And yet what begins to happen majestically, majestically, century after century after century after century to where, to where now Christianity has spread throughout massive sections of the globe and it's one of the it's probably the largest religion in the world and it's the most diverse globally Jesus is saving the nations and so we love to partner with groups who who target unreached people groups because we know Jesus said he will have people from every tribe tongue and nation and there will be believers from every people group because Satan is bound He's bound. And so that's why I say, it's a long argument to get you here. This is hopeful. This is hopeful that Satan is bound. Does it give you hope to endure for the testimony of Jesus? Does it give give you hope to, to keep pressing forward in the mission of the church, to reach those who don't know Christ? Our special offering again, Give to Reach All Nations, doing great work for the gospel in southeast India, reaching the unreached. Uh, efforts to get into that 1040 window where there's, where there's people groups have never heard the name of Jesus. This mission of Christians from every ethnic group, subculture with a language, this can be accomplished and it will. Jesus said the gospel we preach to all nations and then the end will come. So we want to be hopeful about the spread of the gospel among the nations. And also, and here's where I want to challenge you. 
I want you to be hopeful that God could use you to spread the gospel in your world. Informal poll, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you think you could share the gospel with someone to the effect that they would believe and be saved? What if Satan was bound? Some of you, you've been coming to church for years and years and years. You could could tell me the basics of the gospel. Does the gospel have power to save? Does it have power to save by the power of the Holy Spirit? Does it have power to save? Remember God's directives, his law really for Christians. Practice hospitality. It's been difficult for us in a way. (laughs) But let's bring it back. Practice hospitality. Build relationships with people who don't know Christ so well. Or how about this for a suggestion? What if you said to an unchurched or unbelieving friend, hey, will you read the, will you read the gospel of Mark with me? I just want you to see Jesus kind of from his own words. Let's walk through it together. You think any of your friends would do that? Or, or what if you asked somebody else at church and said, let's, let's do it together, two of us and a couple friends. Let the, let the unbelievers outnumber you. And, and just walk through it and, look, and, and let people ask questions and, and show them Christ from his word. And if you, if you have a question you stumble with, you don't know how to answer it, we're here to help you. But, but what does it mean to be hopeful in the idea that Satan's bound and the gospel will spread to those God will save? Let's be hopeful in that. Let's endure loyally the gospel and its call. Second point, our assurance. Verse 4, then I saw a throne seated on them were those to whom the, the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus for the word of God, had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So first we see, right, it's a picture of, of martyrs. Those who have died faithful to Jesus. And it's, it's the picture of those who paid this ultimate cost that John wants us to be willing to pay. Um, they were faithful to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And what happened to, to at least this group? Beheaded. And this, they, this picture of these martyrs, they kind of represent the church. Why do I say that? What stood out about the martyrs in verse 4? What did they not do? They didn't worship the beast or its image. They didn't receive its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Uh, we, we've seen this throughout Revelation, right? What is the mark of beasts? of the beast signify? Is it, a, is it a secret tattoo they're going to try to laser sketch on you while you're not looking? Um, is it a credit card, you know? No, what is it? No, this, this signifies a spiritual reality on whether or not you'll compromise the gospel and its call. Um, it, it shows you what you love the most. Remember, there's an invisible mark for both kinds of people. If you belong to Jesus, his name is written on your head. That's what Revelation says. And if, if you'll compromise on him and you'll, and you'll turn from him and, and turn from his call, then, then the mark of the beast is on head and hand. It's the way you think. It's what you do. Right? It, it means you, 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 you turned away from him. And so these people who wouldn't worship the beast or its image didn't receive the mark. These are, these are Christians who died, not, not perfectly, but faithful to Christ and his call. And John sees this picture of them. And look what he sees in verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So what's he, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? Well, I think all, all things taken equal, you read the New Testament, there's really just one literal resurrection we're supposed to expect. When Jesus comes back, everyone, believers and unbelievers, will be resurrected with a body. And Jesus will judge them according to their deeds and their lives and their work. And those who have trusted Christ are vindicated by what he's done, will enjoy him forever on on the new heavens and the new earth. And those who haven't, right, will, the Bible says it's very sober, will experience the 
eternal judgments that, that is deserved for denying an infinite, worthy, and holy God. But that, that's the one resurrection we're waiting for. So, so what's this first resurrection where these people don't get the second death? Well, I think what's happening here is just the answer to this question. Do, do you ever wonder what happens to your loved ones who die trusting Jesus? We have that question. We, we wonder about them. We, we, we miss them. What, what are they doing? What is it like for them? And here John is showing us, right? The first picture of the thousand years was, hey, church, there's hope. Spread the gospel. God's going to save his people. God's going to keep you if you are his people. Satan's bound. He's going to get you to the end. He's going to save his people. And then the next picture of the thousand years is, even if it kills you being faithful to the gospel, don't worry. Because guess what you're going to do during this thousand years, this time before Jesus comes back? Did you see what you're going to do? You're going to reign with Jesus Christ. You're going to reign with Jesus Christ. And only believers get this privilege. Do you see that? There's only one kind of people that had this first resurrection. Those who trust Christ, even at death, they come to life to enjoy the presence of Jesus and reign with him. Think, think of those loved ones you miss so dearly who died in Christ, trusting Jesus. They are alive with him now. They're waiting on their glorified bodies, but they are happily, personally reigning with Jesus Christ right now. Is this theme in the New Testament where you, where you die and immediately you're with Christ enjoying him if you belong to him? Is that a reality in the New Testament? It's a reality throughout the Bible. Remember the Sadducees come after Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus says that's because you don't know God or the scriptures. What does Jesus say to them in Matthew twenty two thirty two? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but of who? Of the living. They're dead and they came to life. They are with the Father. Paul talked like this. We read about it this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, 6. We are always of good courage. And he knows the tribulation and the kingdom working side by side. But he says, we're always of good courage, for we know that while we're at home in the body, that's here in this life, in the body, we are in a way, we are away from who? The Lord. Well, isn't the Lord with you by his spirit? Yeah, he is, but, but there's an aspect of this. We walk by what right now, here? We walk by faith and not by sight. I'm believing his promises, we have the spirit, we have one another, but but. We don't have sight of Jesus yet. But, so we're here in the body, we're away from the Lord, but we're of good courage because we would rather be, Paul says, away from the body. That's the idea of you've died because where will you be when you die if you're a believer? And I like, I like how he uses the word home because how does that sound to you? Jesus said to his disciples, I go to make a place for you. When you die, you'll go, where will you go? Home. Do you ever feel like this world is not your home? It's because it's not supposed to be. And when you die, you go home to be with the Lord. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross who trusted in him? Today, you will be with me. Where? In paradise. You're going to die this ugly, dirty, deserved death on a cross. You put your faith in me while you're hanging on this tree. Jesus says, today we will kick it together in paradise. He's alive. He's reigning with Jesus. That's why John says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. The second death is when Jesus judges and he sends those who have not trusted in him to judgment. That's the second death and it lasts forever. But for those who die in the Lord, you get this first resurrection to be with the Lord and the second death, no power. Can't get you. You're in Christ. His life for yours, his death for yours, his resurrection for yours. And so John says, blessed and holy is the one who shares this. 
They'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. The thousand years is right now, and all of God's people who have died in faith are reigning with Jesus now. Now. Doesn't Paul talk this way? Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ. And to die. Anybody remember? It's gain. What? That's one of those things you believe, but you don't believe, right? I mean, I'm with you. How many of you are like, I want to die today? Well, maybe some people. Uh, life gets hard. Life gets hard. But the, the Christian heart says, to live is Christ, so if he wants me here, I'll live for him. And to die, that will actually be, that's a promotion. It's gain. Paul says, 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, put, is, is to depart. Why? And to be with Christ. Because it's better. Our hope, Satan is bound. God will save and keep his people. Our assurance no matter what our enemy brings in this life, even death, guess where we go? We reign with Christ. Third, our confidence. It takes us to Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So you see the picture, right? Satan, Satan's binding is over, and what does he do immediately? He deceives the nations. And do you see how it was everybody? Four corners of the earth? What does that mean? All of them. Um, the kings of the earth, it's said in other places. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. What does that mean? Is a lot, okay? Yeah. They're like the sand of the sea, and they marched over the plain of the earth and surrounded, who have all the nations surrounded in this picture? God's people. And so Satan, it's, like it said earlier in the chapter, he's, he's, he's out to deceive the nations so that the whole world is after the church. And we've seen this picture several times. Probably at some point the whole world will be after the church and it will look hopeless for us. But we've seen also several times that what happens just when it seems like all is lost, the one who's faithful and true arrives on the white horse. In this case, fire falls from heaven and it hits and it happens and we are delivered. And here's the point, right? The last, this last enemy in this story was the devil, the dragon. And in verse 10, we see the resolve. What happens? The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the pro false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's just remember, hell is not where the devil hangs out. You ever seen that in a commercial? The devil has a tail and you drink Bud Light and play pool or something. You know, Mark Twain said, you, you go to heaven for the climate and hell for the company, I think he said. Uh, boy, is he misled. Was he misled? Hell is, is punishment for the evilest of evil. And the evilest of evil will receive his just punishment. And there, there won't be a struggle. It's not like Jesus and the devil will box it out and will wonder who's going to win and, and watch. No, it will, be, it will be done decisively and appropriately and justly and powerfully and eternally. Do you know how the Apostle Paul ends uh, his, his letter to the, to the Romans? He tells them to watch out for false teachers and those that would cause division. And, and, he, and he, he calls them to try to be faithful to the gospel. And he says this, Romans 16, 20. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, I think the amillennial view of the thousand years is the clearest, simplest, and most biblically faithful way to interpret the millennium. If you disagree with me, I love you. And it's not my main concern. My main concern is that God's people would hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ no matter the cost. And I think John is saying we can and we should and we will and we're encouraged to do it because of, number one, the hope. Though tribulation may increase, Satan is bound and nothing can stop the gospel from saving God's people. Number two, the assurance. Even when you die, you will reign with Jesus in paradise until he returns. And number three, the confidence. Though our enemy, though he rages, he will be utterly, totally, and eternally defeated. It's just another way to say the message of Revelation. Jesus is king, he wins, and so will his people. So if you're not his people, trust him and become one of his people. And if you are his people, hold fast. Hold fast, no matter the cost, because we win. Let's pray. God, I just ask that um, whatever I said that was worthwhile this morning would hit home that hearts would be drawn to Jesus and what he's done for us and coming to save us, what he will do for us as he returns, what he is doing as the reigning king. And Lord, wherever we land on parsing out these details, we pray that we would honor you as your people, full of love for you, full of love for one another, and a faithfulness to you and your call, a faithfulness to the gospel. Oh Lord, let us hold fast faithfully, no matter the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.